Welcome to Live Courageously podcast show number 24 of 2023. And I'm your host, John Duffy. And this is the 40th Live Courageous podcast show since I started the show a year and a half ago. Live Courageously has been the conscious theme of my life for the last three years since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And it's been an unconscious theme of most of my life. Courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all others. So let's meet today's courageous guest. My guest today was suggested to me by a friend, Bob Donovan, a um, Air Force veteran and a member of Operation Gratitude, who told me I had to interview her and share her powerful story. So today my guest is Brianna Cespedes, and Brianna is a Cuban-Mexican American that loves the Constitution. She's a broadcast journalist by trade and a storyteller at heart, and she's worked as a broadcast journalist in the military for the past four years in videography, photojournalism, and radio. Her goal is to continue in journalism even after the military to support freedom and democracy. She was unlawfully discharged from the United States Air Force in 2022 after five years of service due to, due to her conviction to say no to the COVID-19 vaccine. She now speaks about her experiences in order to bring awareness and support to other veterans that have the same story through an online group called Involuntary Veterans. And our hope is to unite for the protection of liberty and honor the veterans that served and were so unjustly treated. Uh, Brianna recently started a Facebook group and an Instagram page for involuntary veterans, and you can find more information on them under that name. So let's uh, welcome our guest to the show today. Brianna, thank you for being on and thank you for you know, sh coming on to share this story with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be on. Oh, absolutely. So usually, I, I, I mo most of my guests have been people I know personally, and obviously I, we've never met. And I, like yeah. I said, I was introduced to you by a friend who told me I had to have you on the show. And of course, when he told me that, I said, yeah, I guess I do. So I'm glad he uh, kind of made us, uh, brought that connection together for us. But one of the other questions I usually ask people is, what does live courageously mean to you? And you've obviously been courageous in many different aspects of your life. So how do you interpret that? That's a good question. Um, living courageously, I think, is standing up, especially for people that are helpless, helping the helpless. I think that often people um, in many circumstances are silenced or they have to be. And if you have the opportunity to actually speak up, then take that risk. And I think living courageously is just being emboldened by something bigger than yourself and being motivated by that to, to act and to stand up for people that can't. Well, we're going to get into a couple of examples of that in your lifetime where you've done that. But uh, t tell us a little, because I don't know your story. And um, what is your personal journey? You know, where did you grow up? How did you, you know, get to the point where you are today? And tell us a little bit about that backstory for the audience. Yeah, so I am a California girl. I was raised in the rancheros in the desert, not the beach. I'm not a surfer girl. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm Cuban-Mexican, so... My dad, actually, um, his father comes from Cuba, and then my mom comes from Chihuahua. And uh, we were raised homeschooled. We were raised really um, conservative Christian. We were the first Christians, actually, in my family because we came from a Catholic background, like a lot of Latinos. Mm -hmm. um, so our, 
it was very interesting growing up kind of in the desert. I had a horse. We would hunt rattlesnakes, um, kind of growing up like that, where we were taught a lot of biblical principles, a lot of um, things that were going to be important later on that I didn't know. Right. Um, but just to be steadfast and have a strong foundation is really, really important. So I'm one of five girls, actually. The only reason that there's five of us is because my dad was trying for a boy every time. <laughs> um, literally, it, that, that's why. Um, <laughs> he would name us, he would have a name for a boy before we were born. Wow. And they didn't find out the gender until actual birth. So uh, really interesting that he ended up having all women in his family. Very machismo guy. <laughs> so uh, for him, that was pretty difficult. Uh, but so, it was, so God clearly had a different plan for him and, and yes. for the rest of you than he had. That's for exactly, sure. Exactly. Um, but such a good, good man. Um, him and my mom, I, I, I just have, I have to be so thankful to them for the way that they raised me, um, the strength that they passed on to me. And yeah, I grew up in California. I ended up just being super into the outdoors loving public service, loving the constitution. I ended up uh, finishing college, university at 15 years old actually, because wow. of our school program. So it's only because of the program, not because I'm some like crazy genius. Well, I was gonna say, I dropped out of high school when I was 15. So you- Oh, really? You, yes. <laughs> so you took a different path than me, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to each their own, right? Yeah. Um, but all of my sisters, like my, my youngest sister, she's 12. She just graduated from call, uh, from high school, not college, thankfully, uh, high school. She got her diploma. Right. So it's the program that my mom actually worked in California, completely legal, everything. We went through everything. Um, and we were able to finish that young. So that kind of childhood is the one that I had. So I was already set to, to be able to help people. Um, and then, I got really into, like, I wanted to be a firefighter. Then I wanted to be the military because I was like, oh, I could take a trade. I can learn something practical and I can also do something bigger than myself, help people. I love the constitution. I just want to defend the constitution. Um, so I, I decided to join the Air Force at that point. And how old were you, Brianna, at that point when you made that decision? I was 18, almost 19. Okay. Yeah. So. It was after a while, right? I actually, I was done with college and I was like, okay, now what do I do? I'm 15. Like, okay. <laughs> so I got I, like. I, just just hearing you say that I'm done with college and I was 15. <laughs> that's just, that's just great. That's just a fantastic. Uh... It, it was interesting for sure. Cause I had to figure out what to do. I worked for my dad. I, I tried different things. I even went to law school for a little while. I love that. Huh. Um, but I wanted to go to like a brick and mortar law school. So I knew I could never afford to pay for that. So that was another reason I wanted to join the military. Um, but ended up get, getting in when I was like 18, almost 19. And I remember the swearing ceremony, right? When we swear in, we say we swear to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So that, that's what we swear to do. And actually all US citizens do as well. I was just at a naturalization ceremony in Pasadena like a month ago, and they also do that. So every citizen, whether you're born or naturalized, you are swearing to defend the constitution. And I didn't know that. 
And in that um, ceremony, I've I've, ne I've I've wanted to attend one of those, and I and I will. I have not had a chance, an opportunity. But how yeah. big was the one you attended? And I just I've seen them online and on YouTube, and it's just it, to me, it's one of the most powerful things to watch these uh, naturalized citizens, people come from every country in the world, and yeah. they make that decision to join our country and to make that swearing into the country. And just watching it on YouTube, I get moved by it, and I, yeah. I have to attend it in person. But tell, tell me about the one you attended. So they had, it was all day, and they had like at least three groups that were cycling through. And when I say a group, I mean like 450, 500 people. Wow. So so sections of people are going in. They line up outside of the convention center and then they wait their turn. They go through all the, the screenings, everything. And then you actually sit in there um, and then a judge and then um, a few elected officials are in the front. And the judge has everybody raise their hand and repeat after him when he actually um, does the swearing ceremony. It was really cool. I felt like, wow, like the values of um, just being conservative in general, being a, being about the Constitution, being about freedom and the preservation of liberty and and about family, all the core values are in that ceremony. So oh. it, it's just interesting because when you're fresh, right, fresh naturalized, you already technically have sworn to the very values of conservatism. Which is interesting. Well, you know, as a uh, both my parents were born in Ireland, so I'm a first generation American. Oh, so cool. they, they came through Ellis Island and and then uh, met in New York in the Bronx, where you know where I was born. Um, so you know, I have that background as an immigrant families because they and then my dad joined the U.S. Army and fought in the Philippines. So you know that commitment that they came here just like other immigrants to join this country. So it's a fascinating story. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you experience in watching that. I mean, I, I now that encourages me even more to make sure I attend one of these as soon as I can. Yeah, I, you got to go. You I want to see it up close and personal. But um, yeah. so you're 18 and a half. You joined the Air Force. Why the Air Force? Why? What was the Air Force as opposed to all the other branches that appealed to you? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, the Marines, because I had a degree, I was like, well, I could be an officer and I want to join the Marines. I want to go all the way. Be one of the youngest <laughs> Marine officers, go hoorah, do everything. Uh, and my dad, it was great. I went, when I was in the training process to be a Marine officer, my dad told me, sweetie, please no. Like, do not, do not do that because you were, for one, you were homeschooled. You were around women most of your life. And to go from that to go to the Marine Corps would be a lot. So I understood and I took his counsel because, you know, he knew men more. He knew he knew. So I just I took his counsel and then decided to join the Air Force. Ah. And actually, I was looking at officers still. I said, no, I, I want to be an officer. That makes sense. But then as I was talking to more people, I realized that an officer is like a manager. So they have a higher rank, a higher respect. Right. Mm -hmm. But they manage, they do all the, the stuff I didn't want to do. Right. I wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to have a trade. Um, so I chose broadcasting. I just did mm. a voice audition and um, I tried to get into the journalism side because I had an interest in politics and all that kind of stuff. So then I got it 
and I went forward with that. So wow. it was awesome. Really well, think, cool career. I, I think, you know, I think your dad uh, gave you some good counsel. Um, yeah. I ended up uh, doing some training videos for the U.S. Marine, Marine Corps, which is kind of what got me into doing veteran support stuff as a civilian. Oh, and cool. I, went, I went down to uh, Pendleton, of course, and I went to Quantico and we filmed the officers uh, training program OCS at, in Quantico in summer and winter. And, and, and having met those incredible uh, Marines, you know, it kind of gave me that passion to see what I could do as a civilian to serve veterans. So that's kind of where my thing came from. But you're right. You know, it was a very male culture with, yeah. with a lot of, uh, you know, that kind of reality. So yeah. I think your, your, your dad definitely, um, you know, was wise in counseling you to take, choose another path. So then you get into the Air Force, you, you um, take an audio test and you uh, start heading into the broadcast program. So share some of that story with us. Yeah, so my first base was in New Jersey, and I did photography, videography. So basically, we document everything for the military. We document for historical reasons, uh, to for marketing reasons, uh, for just making us look better, social media. We did all that. Um, really cool. I got to like get to know every single career field, and I could just walk in and be like, hey, I'm PA, public affairs. Uh, what do you do? And I could interview anybody, a commander, uh, anybody, right? Really cool job. I would definitely recommend it. Um, and then I got stationed in Korea and in Belgium. And hmm. both of those stations, I was able to do radio broadcast, uh, which was really fun through Armed Forces Network. Uh, Good Morning Vietnam, if you know the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> I always say that because it's I'm surprised you remember, you know it because you obviously it was made way before you were born, but well, yes. I was, I was homeschooled. So I know all the classics, of course, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, so good morning. Vietnam was basically my job and I tried to actually embody what he did, bring joy to people, have a lot of energy um, because military bases can be a depressing and dark environment because a lot of us are sad. We're far away from our families or we're just, there's just a presence there. Um, so I, I wanted to lighten it up. I called myself DJ Cubanita. Um, I played okay. reggaeton. DJ Cubanita? Okay. Cubanita. Yeah. Cubanita. So I picked all the Latino music that I was allowed to. I had to, you know, they, they made me put some other stuff in there. <laughs> so, so at this moment, I'm going to play a little clip that, 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 uh, yeah, go, go, go. Yeah, let's go with this because this is perfect. <laughs> Which of the Latin countries are you from? Mexico. Viva Cuba Libre. It's 50% guaranteed that you'll enjoy it. It's DJ Cubanita. Tequila. Enrica Iglesias. It's Bailando, Bailando, Bailando. This is La Cubanita here on AFN, the Eagles serving America's best. Now, I want y'all to be dancing this entire hour because guess what? This whole hour, we're going to be doing Latino songs solamente, only Latino songs because it's my last day, my last show for you all. I've been here a year now. It's time for me to leave. I've loved being here. I've loved, loved being on the radio but it's time for me to move on and for new people to come in. I'm a senior now, retiring from uh, specifically 
the radio, but I'm really not. I'm going to Europe, so I'll be I'll be on the radio again. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this hour. We're gonna have a lot of fun. I'm gonna be talking about Latino events, Latino clubs, everything kind of Latino. Also some USFK updates, like where you can go in Korea. And today is National Coffee Day, so we're gonna be talking about cafe where and when and which ones are the best rated coffees, Latino coffees, because we understand coffee very well. So stick with me. I got it all here. This hour is going to be my last hour. Super fun. Here's Mi Gente by Jay Belvin. All right. Wow. Yeah, that brings me back. Dang. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was pretty impressive that, that, you know, when I listened to it the first time, I was like, this is great. You know, so you did that for a whole year in um, in, in Korea at the time, correct? Yeah. Yep. I, yep. That was a really fun time for sure. Yeah. I was able to to kind of be the peninsula host. Uh-huh. Uh, so it actually went across the entire peninsula and everybody could hear my voice, even civilians, Korean civilians. They'd be like, oh, I know you like, you know, so <laughs> it was it was really fun. And, and uh, how, how often were you on the radio when you were doing that in the every day? So you you did a, a hourly show, an hour show every day, uh... four hour shows from 10 to 2 wow. uh, those were my my hours. And I was every single day. Wow. Yeah, that's for you must, definitely. You must have had a great time. Yeah. I mean, when I was outside of quarantine, I was on the radio. So that's <laughs> about it. And, um, you know, you raised it. So coffee. I, I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood. So Cafe Bustelo was my was the coffee in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, that's that's a Cuban coffee. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I know. But it was that everybody drank uh, Bustelo. That, as a matter of fact, I still have some Bustelo right now um, in, in my apartment. But uh, what was your favorite coffee? For me... I'm going through a series right now, so I haven't decided what I like the most. Cafe Bustelo is a little bit, it's too strong for me, to okay. be honest. Um, so I really... Starbucks. No, 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 no. I, oh, I, I think oh, it's no. Starbucks. I, Starbucks is a disgrace, okay? Oh, <laughs> and, and the problem is they actually, when I got really mad about Starbucks, because before I was like, okay, they're big, they've made it. They've done good on marketing. Like they even have cups. People want to go around the world and buy their cups, right? True. Um, but when I got kind of mad about it was that sometimes they were the only option available, even overseas. So in Korea, in Europe, sometimes I would go to a gas station and it was Starbucks. Right. It was like the local whatever coffee. It was crazy to me. Anyway, I get happy <laughs> about that. <laughs> Yeah, so we just—I just have to deviate into that because you—you ra- raised it in, in, in the, <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty cool. But so you know, you're doing this thing in Korea, and then from Korea you go to Belgium, right? So was was Korea your first international um, service outside of the U.S.? Yes. Okay, and then and then you go to Belgium, and did you do a year in Belgium as well? I was there probably about eight months before I got okay. kicked out. Oh, okay. So, and then how long were you in the military the total time? Uh, it was about until, five years. About five years. Yep. And, you know, and tell me, you know, besides doing this incredible fun show that you did to, you know, lift everybody up and share culture and music and all that cool stuff, you know, what did you learn in the military? What did you love best about being in the military? So for me, I joined to do something bigger than myself, right? Kind of have that bond with people. And I learned a lot of team 
work and team environment stuff that I wasn't really aware of before because a lot of what I did was individual. I did school individually. I did a lot by myself. Um, so that was really, really cool to learn, okay, this is how people from all over the world work because you get people that are trying to get their citizenship by being in the military. I had a, in Korea, I met another Cuban and he was actually from Cuba and he was trying to get his citizenship. Um, I just so many varieties of people. You have a whole world located on a military base. So to me that that's really cool. And also it brings a lot of that strain that you have to learn. How do you communicate? How do you work as a team? So I liked that part a lot. Um, I just learned a lot about life in the military. I also learned a lot of like the bureaucracy going on and what they're teaching in the military. Um, they're, they're really pushing a lot of politics. I thought I could be outside of politics if I joined the military. Just, okay, we'll take the orders from the president and then we just do it. But we shouldn't have to worry about what civilians worry about. But it's, it's there and it's pushed on us a lot. Um, and did, so you feel, did you feel in the five years that you were in that it changed in that direction? Or was it kind of always there when you got in and you just noticed it? And it continued to exist that way to push into politics, or did it kind of like grow over time? What was your, your your experience with that? So my um, a lot of the staff sergeants at the point that I had just got in, a lot of my NCOs were saying this military is nothing like what it used to be in my time. So it was right. about five years. So maybe about 2010, 2011 is where it really started getting like political and like pushing a lot of these different things on us mm -hmm. so we were starting to get a little softer too so i did i did talk to a lot of ncos that were like no this military is not is not the same because i was expecting the old military to be honest going in i kind of wanted more of a hoorah i did join the air force too i mean that that might have <laughs> that idea but <laughs> well, yeah, there's a little less of a hoorah than uh, yes that's that, that is true although you know uh, i attended um uh, i was privileged and honored to attend a, a air show with the blue angels and oh, the Thunderbirds, and the, both of those one navy one is air force right um and they put on a special air show and i got we had dinner with all the the pilots and the crew and everybody who puts that together you know and meeting the both the navy and air force uh, pilots. I mean, it was pretty impressive. I mean, that uh, uh, experience, that level of it, you know, it was like the movie with uh, Tom Cruise, but real, you know, the real right, thing right. with the real people. No, you know? those pilots, I've met them before. They're, they're solid. They, right. they have, they right. have, yeah, that's another level. We were, I was enlisted just on that, right. that level. I'm the, the body and, you know. Sure, sure. But, <laughs> so. Yeah, there's many different levels to it for sure. So okay. you know, before I want to kind of go into a little bit more, but tell me a little bit more, anything else about the, your experience in, in those years internationally. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, you're in Korea, uh, you're in Belgium, you grew up in the Valley, you know, I mean, the uh, far, far Valley, not, not, yeah. the, not, not, yeah, not the desert Valley, the real Valley. <laughs> um, so, you know, and then you're in places like Korea, different culture, Belgium, different culture. What was that experience like for you? And you were homeschooled. And so now you're meeting people of every different variety and, and, and learning to understand them and appreciate their cultures. What was that experience like for you? 
It was really, really cool. I remember when I um, first arrived, I was picked up by a van from one of the NCOs and he was taking me to the military base. And I remember being in Korea and looking out at the signs and the streets. I was like, whoa, I'm, I'm not in the, in the United States of America. Like, whoa, <laughs> it was so different. I mean, Eastern culture is very, very different. Um, and to, to be there and to live there, not just to tour there is really creates a different experience because you get to know the Koreans. I was able to learn a lot. Um, I met a few Korean civilians that worked on base and then they would take me out and we would go to dinner and they showed me customs like, okay, in Korea, for example, it's not uh, gender based, it's based on age. So right. you respect the person who's the oldest and the youngest has to serve everybody at the table, for example. Or when you drink, you can't drink at a person, you have to drink to the side. Simple things like that. Um, very respectful culture, very quiet and timid. But then if you get a couple sojus in them, they're <laughs> Koreans are, they are actually quite crazy. Um, <laughs> they, they have like um, amusement parks that are all like love. They're called it a love park. Um, you know, they have like those kind of parks where it's just straight up very sexual stuff, actually. Wow. Um, but it's interesting because um, you learn, like you, your mind expands to how other countries view the United States, how they view the United States military. I think the younger generation of Koreans really liked us and they loved our movies, they loved our music, they loved how we dressed, everything. Um, but the older generations of Koreans uh, did not like us very much. Um, I remember going to Jeju Island, which is just south. It's beautiful, awesome place. But there's only one bar on that whole island that would accept Americans. All the oh. other ones go um, like this, X with their hands, because um, they just didn't want Americans there. Because we caused too much ruckus. Very oh. different culture, right? Very loud, very, like, um, just a little bit more, like, here I am, you know, while Koreans are more like, hey, it's about the community, not about you. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't like because of old stuff as much as it was just about that the Americans who came there, especially the military Americans, the culture was a little bit more aggressive and more loud and more what we are boisterous. And that wasn't their culture. And so the older people didn't appreciate that, obviously. Um, well, it's culture, but it's also has to do with the military presence we have. Right. Um, we have 15 U.S. military bases on that on South Korea, which is smaller than most of our states, right? right. So it's just interesting. Uh, I don't know what they think. I talked to a few of them, and you have very different opinions. I mean, there would be a protest on one gate of the base and on another, one for Trump and one against him. This was when Trump was. Um, so you get a lot of differing opinions. Um, I just remember meeting a lot of Koreans that either would love you or hate you right away because they knew that you were an American just by the way you held yourself or talked. Uh, so, but and I learned I, a lot. It, it was really cool. What's that? I learned a lot. It was really cool. Opened up my mind uh, to a lot of things. And, and also just, it was fun. It was a lot of fun when we could have fun though. This was during COVID. So I was... Right. 
their October 2020 to October 2021. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of because I, I want to come back to COVID and I want to come back to what happened to you because that's really you know where I want to take you as well with our conversation. Mm-hmm. But I also want to mention you know because there's another piece that I read about you know when I did a little bit of a, a backstory on you. And, you know, what you're talking about in Korea, obviously, one thing that is true in Korea, and I don't know if you at homeschooled and did much, but obviously there's the division between North and South Korea, between communist Korea and, and democratic Korea. And that division, too, affects a lot of the attitudes, even in South Korea as well. I don't want to kind of get into that. You probably saw maybe uh, bits and pieces of it with the types of demonstrations. Um, but what I want to talk about is your experience, because your your dad was Cuban. Um I read about, you know, you wrote an article about Cuba and, you know, and you got a T-shirt on that says you may want to just tell the audience what your T-shirt says. Yeah, it's Patria y Vida, um, which stood for it was the motto behind the big protest July 11th in 2021, which was when I was in Korea. It was the biggest protest that we have seen of Cubans since Fidel Castro's revolution in 1959. So. There was a huge like song, a huge movement, San Isidro movement, where people were fed up. There was a quote um, from one of the Cubans, and they said, we were so hungry, we ate our fear, and we just went out on the streets and protested. Because over there, they can't do that. There's tens of thousands of people in prison still because they were standing up there. So uh, it was was very impactful uh, for me in Korea. All I wanted to do was fly over to Cuba. (laughs) <laughs> but I was in the military, I couldn't do that, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, I actually was able to host a party pretty much where I just got people together to support um, what was going on. And my mom actually hosted actual an actual rally and protest where she was. We kind of got together behind the Cuban people because we know how long for example, my abuelos, they came in 1960. They came over here. And they the way they speak about Cuba is such a mystery to me because they smile and want to cry at the same time when they talk about it. Mm. They talk about the old Cuba. They loved it. They loved the way they grew up. They loved the culture. They loved the people. And the Cuba now, they don't even want to go back. My abuelo says he will not go back. He doesn't want to see it. He doesn't want to believe that it it's it is the way it is today so I think that's another reason why I'm so passionate about um, not giving up too much freedom because if you give up you can't take it back not easily at least so that's why to tie it to COVID I saw an overstepping of of the government I saw an overstepping of the way they controlled what we did where we went, if we could enter a coffee shop, if we were to stay in our homes, if we could run outside. And that went too far. It just was too far. And we couldn't give it up. Otherwise, what else would we give up? It, they'll keep going. <laughs> so, Very yeah. true. Very true. Now, um, just a quick, quick uh, thing on, on Cuba, and then we'll go forward to uh, COVID. But like you said, did you always, did your father um, have that instill in you that respect for and desire for freedom in Cuba? Was that something that you were raised with to understand the importance of that, that the Cuban people 
you know, desired and wanted freedom from the dictatorship of the communists over there? That's definitely, yeah. He raised us to just reminding us. I mean, our story is powerful enough with my uh, grandparents. That speaks enough. I mean, just from where we're, what we're connected to, we're connected to um, Carlos Manuel de Céspedes. He's like the George Washington of Cuba. Okay. He started uh, the Ten Years' War against Spain, which led to eventually the independence of Cuba against Spain. So we have revolutionaries in our family and people that love freedom and actually were the ones who helped, not did it, but helped to, to bring that. And then to see it taken away from us within three generations was, it was, it was really sad. So um, I think for us, it, it's a matter of, we don't want to lose that here too. You know, uh, that that's very much how my dad raised us. Well, I, I've had a unique experience because when I grew up, like I said, I dropped out of high school and um, the neighborhood I, I grew up in at that time as a teenager, I volunteered to go cut a sugar cane in Cuba for Fidel. Um, no way. And, yeah, yeah, way. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> way. And I was uh, 15 years old at the time. Uh, unlike you in college, I was, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, you know, had that passion to go do something bigger than myself. And I thought that was a great thing at that time, being an undereducated kid in the, in the Bronx. And uh, I, th I was too young and they didn't allow me to go, which uh, it probably turned out to be a good thing later in life. But eventually over my journey in life, obviously I came to realize that what was created over there and in similar countries was not utopia, which is what I thought it was. And what I wanted was a better world. We all want a better world, right? And so if you're, if you're creating a better world, I'm down with that. But it took me a while and I had to grow up and mature and then learn behind what was really going on to realize that it wasn't a utopia. It was a nightmare. It was a, a dictatorship. It was a lack of freedom, not freedom and not a better world, a worse world. But anyway, that was my journey. I went down that very different than yours. But, um, you know, it's kind of so you know, now I value the fact that people want freedom in that country and other countries like that. So, you know, I uh, salute you for wanting to you know continue that uh, effort. But let's go back to your COVID thing, because, you know, what you were mentioning, you started to see, you know, uh, when did uh, where were you when when COVID first started uh, in the world? Well, what, what country were you in? I was in Jersey in March of 2020. That's okay. when it started. And it was easy. I mean, all of us were like, oh, this is not a big deal. You know, exactly. But they they I was actually being deployed to New York hospitals and dealing with all the COVID patients the whole time, never got COVID, went at the heat, you know, in 2020. Um, so it was just interesting. Uh, we were we were pretty chill. And at first, I think everybody was kind of like, oh, we don't really understand what this is. So they just made us go um, work at home, which was awesome. I just got to work from home, being my PJs, that was awesome. But after about like, I don't know, three, four, five months, you're like, okay, can we, can we stop now? <laughs> I thought this was going to be over like in the summer, you know? <laughs> right. We, we were going to shut down for a couple of weeks and then it was going to. So that was not the case at all. <laughs> no, it wasn't, was it? No. So, um, yeah, I was in Jersey and ended up getting um, that short term deployment slash short tour to Korea. Uh, and because President Trump at that time, he was sending a lot of people to Korea. So I was one of them that volunteered to go. And 
that's where it really got bad. That's where I was actually sent to a predetermined barracks building that's called the COVID barracks. And they have people in full suits, like chemical suits. They have tapered off yards, um, everything, right? It was a whole nother level. So when I arrived, they put you in quarantine for 14 days. And I quarantined before as well. And you're, you're there and you're like, wow, this is, this is another level. You're in isolation. You're in this barracks room. And you have nothing except for your computer, your suitcase. And then they have somebody trolley over food to you three times a day. Really bad military food, you know. And then the best part after seven days is to go outside for 45 minutes in a tapered off little yard where you can stand there or do some push-ups or something. Um, And that was my life in Korea and in Belgium over and over and over. So quarantine over the time in Korea and in Belgium, about a year and a half, almost half a year I spent, 140, 40 something days. And why were you quarantined? So in the beginning, it was just like everybody else. So everybody was quarantined. Everybody was. So in the beginning, it was like, okay, I'm going because I'm getting deployed there or I'm moving here or, oh, my coworker coughed. Okay, go in quarantine. Or you were at, um, let's say, the gym and somebody later got COVID and you were in the gym at the same time as him. So they would just do it, whatever. Um, So a lot of those, but it wasn't until I said, I don't want the vaccine that I really just started getting quarantined like crazy. Uh, And that's when things were starting to slow down for other people that were vaccinated. Cause if you weren't vaccinated, you had to do much more. If you were, then you could do like a seven day quarantine or kind of get out of it and stuff. So it was interesting to see how I got stuck in side for so long and i was like is this is this right are they allowed to do this no they aren't yeah exactly but they did um when did that happen when did you make that decision so uh when, when was it september 2021 so i was almost actually done in korea at okay. that um and i remember getting an email straight directly from my MAGCOM major commander. Okay. So that guy is the top of the line for my MAGCOM major command. And he is not supposed to talk to you directly without your supervisor involved in some way. Okay. Okay? Especially by email. I received an email from him that said, if you do not get this vaccine within the next seven days, you are going to face uh, severe punishment, uh, court potential court martial, severe repercussions. Do not disobey lawful order, things like that. Right. So at that point, um, I was kind of on the edge about the vaccine, and I didn't really want it, um, but I hadn't made any decision. But after that email, I was like, oh. Okay. I got scared at first and that was the only time I considered maybe I should just do it, make it easy on myself. All my friends were telling me, Bree, just get it. Like it, it's going to be okay. You just, you, you'll be able to do everything with us. You can, 
avoid quarantines all the time. But what what's interesting is that tactic of fear that was used actually confirmed in me that it was the right decision to go against. So because the tactic of COVID in general, not just for me, but for everybody, it was all about fear. It was all about making us dread even getting close to somebody and, and doing natural things. So I realized at that point that um, I was definitely not going to get it. And I chose to actually fight this almost as something to fight bigger than myself, fight for the principle. Um, Cause I didn't want the vaccine. I didn't want to take the risk, but it was bigger than me. It was actually about, Hey, everybody else that's put in the same position, if nobody is actually pushing back against this, then what will stop the government from, from doing what they want? You know, we need people that push back. We need that. Well, you know, it, it, I got tons of questions to ask you further, but you know, it's kind of why I started this podcast show in um, a year and a half, two years ago uh, and called it live courageously because it was response to that fear that was coming in every direction at us. Right. right. So it was, you know, I have a hat behind me that says a faith over fear. And, you know, it was everywhere I went, it was fear, 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 fear. You know, the media was selling it. Everybody was selling fear and asking you to buy it. And the thing was, fear is the worst thing that you can ever have in your life because fear warns you of danger, but fear should not paralyze you from taking risks or, or being brave. That's not what fear is, the purpose of fear. You know, is it's a danger, pay attention to it and then make a conscious decision as to what you do. So you made that, you you made a, and you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming right that there wasn't a lot of people in your um, working with you at the time who made the same decision? Nobody, nobody in my entire major command. So I was the first, my commander told me, I was the first one that he had to deal with um, and went through this to actually like officially discharge me. Um, and I wanted to say actually about the fear part, especially as a Christian, someone who has the word of God and who believes in a savior, right? Where the spirit is, there's freedom. There's not fear. And and I just found that we have to be free from that because ultimately the fear of God frees us to be not afraid of anything else, you know? Right. <laughs> so that, that's really what um, kept that strength. Otherwise I wouldn't have had the strength. Um, but yeah, I was the first one in my command. And then I didn't meet anybody face to face that also wasn't getting it. I did meet some people through Military Freedom Keepers. I don't know if you know that organization. Uh, military Freedom Keepers, no. Yeah, so they um, they were just helping us military members that were not getting the vaccine to to stand up. They were helping with religious exemptions, and they were supporting us online <clears throat> by just saying, "Hey, there's other people like you." I felt so alone. I mean, when okay. you're there and you're told just get the vaccine, just get the vaccine. And then your life will be, you'll be good. You won't be stuck in quarantine. Just, just do it. Like, it doesn't matter. You've been vaccinated with all the other things. Just do it. Right. Um, it was very tempting, especially in my age group, a lot of peer pressure. And I was isolated. I was put in quarantine so much. I felt like I was being imprisoned for my decision. So it was definitely hard. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but 
Uh, we are back. I'll try to edit this if I can. Otherwise, yeah, we'll figure it's not out. live. That's good. Because we'll I was, I was like, we'll oh, another way to kind of make this happen. But we had a little bit of a, uh, I guess my internet is being shut down. But yeah, and it's just ironic because you were at a, such a powerful point right there. And it was like, no. Um, no, but, but I think I, I finished the point and it was good. And then I was like, oh, John? Hello? Yes, and then you were wrong. So, but just to reiterate that point, I, yes. I, it was strong enough to repeat. So you you were kind of saying about that. You obviously, you know, were isolated. You had this group that was kind of giving you some support, and then take us through that little finish of that piece. Yeah. So being being under all of this pressure, where I was the only one in my command, I was the only one on base that I knew of that wasn't getting the vaccine. You feel very alone, and and the pressure of like just just get it. Just, just, you'll be able to make your life so much easier. You won't be in quarantine. You're not going to be in trouble. You're not going to lose your, all your benefits that you've worked for. Just everything where everybody, my supervisors, my commanders, my friends, everybody was telling me a guy randomly on the street, coffee shops, everything. You couldn't even go into a coffee shop. Okay. At a bakery. And I was in Europe. I want to go get a baguette, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, it was a lot of pressure. And I really felt, again, like in quarantine, especially all those months being in quarantine, you feel like you're being imprisoned for the decision that you're making. And it's unjust. It was just unjust. And there was no legal reason, no legal backing that they had. And I, I was trying to fight them with the law. But I figured out when I was pulling up the policies that said, hey, you can only quarantine them this for this long. And I was telling my supervisor, ma'am, how is that lawful? You're putting me in longer back-to-back -back quarantines. You can't do that. And she said, that's just how it is. Right. I can't fight it. I couldn't fight it. Well, like you said earlier, you talked about how when you got that email from your commanding officer that wasn't supposed to send it to you directly, that it, it had the opposite result than his intention was, which was to scare you into behavior and, and to um, obedience. Yes. And, you, and, it, it, and you took that and took it the other way. That gave you strength to not uh, obey. And just like what you're saying with all this, you know, everywhere you went, everybody was like, yeah, just go along. And, you know, and you were in the military, but even in civilian life it was, yeah, go along. You can go see concerts, go along. Yeah. You can get free McDonald's. You can get all this stuff for free, you know, and everybody's like, so you're selling this something that's supposed to help people. You're, you're doing all this to convince them. And if it was so great, why would you need to do all of that? No, but you, you know, why would you have to use both things, strength and, you know, I mean, the stick in the carrot, all to try and force behavior when yeah. you supposedly have the greatest thing in the world, everybody should be saying, give it to me, please. But right. they, weren't. they weren't. And what's interesting is that um, I remember when Fauci said, uh, all you have to do to be immune from COVID is get the first shot, the second shot, the booster and COVID, and then you'll be immune. What? That's true. <laughs> right. And then COVID. <laughs> There's a there's a YouTube video out right now by this comedian Dana uh, Dana Carver, and if you get a chance, take a look at it. But he makes so much fun of what you just said, uh, you know. Where eventually he's at a point he was like, well, then you just get one every day, and then you're immune for like 39 <laughs> seconds till you walk to your car. But that's great, 39 seconds, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're like, 
but you're, they can make fun of it now. They couldn't do it before. They were afraid to do it before. They were afraid to make fun of this because they were afraid of being canceled. And um, But you had that courage and you stayed, like you said, and it, it was unfair. It wasn't uh, proper what they did. And here's somebody you went in to serve and you went to serve the country, to serve something bigger than yourself. And then you're treated this way, not even following their own policies and their own regulations. And they're violating everything that they've set up and they're just rewriting the laws, the regulations and saying, well, we just say it. So you just obey it. So you couldn't even go as far to rewrite, rewrite. They would just actually just straight up ignore them. Right. And, and honestly, like I, I tell this story um, because my experience was bad, but I know s- that there were so many worse worse circumstances. People were going through court martials. People were losing pay. They, they got their promotions taken away from. I got a staff sergeant taken away, but some people had been in for 18 years and then they got everything taken away. I mean, I have looked up numbers, so I actually have some numbers here. So I generally say over 50,000, right? But that number is very small. Um, for active duty, I was looking online as much as I could to find, like, what are the numbers as of today, 2023, June? We have in the old ones in 2022, 8,500 active duty troops, but that was early 2022. So I don't know how many people active duty got kicked out. Then you have reserves and National Guard, and that's where the numbers just blow up. Really? You have no number that you can actually calculate, and that is actually up online. Um, because I'm sure the DOD doesn't want to tell everybody. Um, but it's people were put on unpaid status. People were just completely like rejected. And, and the part that gets me and gets like my heart in it is that these people who we say in the United States, we, we say these are the people we honor the most, our military, our police, our firefighters. We honor these people the most they are supposed to be taken care of. There's so many VA programs um, to protect us, to take care of us, because we've served them. Now the government serves us, right? But I saw in in the last, what, two, three years now, uh, I saw just that we were dishonoring our veterans so much. And in fact, we took away the honorable discharge. President Biden wanted to give us a dishonorable. There was a bill that passed through Cruz was on it. Rubio was on it. They were trying to get um, military members to be guaranteed who didn't take the vaccine to be guaranteed to get an honorable. Biden pushed that down. He did not want that bill to pass. So what we have is a protection from dishonorable. Otherwise, I'm sure President Biden would have given me a dishonorable discharge, um, which is alike to a felon, by the way. It's very Mm -hmm. hard to get a dishonorable discharge. Um, And I have a general which is like admin, which is, it could be medical or it could be something like one of my friends, um, she was actually sexually assaulted. And this guy that did that got a general. Mm. So I have the same discharge status as this ugly man who did this ugly thing. And that- That's not right. It hurts, it hurts. And and they did this to a lot of us. And it's not right, it's not fair, it's not, it's, it's, it's totally wrong. Everything yeah. about it is wrong, hundred yeah. percent. So, 
and, and you and, and then eventually you you got out and I kind of want to take us as we try and get to the finish of this wrap up you, you didn't give up you you know your strength continued and you started an organization and you say this a fifth of 50,000 people and for people who don't know that's ones who have been forced out of the military whether active duty or the national guard that's the number that you know whatever that you can kind of figure out which is a lot of people at a time when our military is not meeting any of its recruitment goals in mo almost all branches of the military as well. So, you know, once again, just from a leadership position to do that to an organization where you're not succeeding and you're going to make it even worse on your organization takes a certain level of something. Um, obviously not the proper leadership that's required in, in my opinion. Um, no, this actually, this past recruitment year was considered the worst recruitment environment since Vietnam, since the end of Vietnam, total forces at 85%. I found that out the other day. I was like, what? <laughs> We're in the Vietnam era of recruitment. You know yes, how, obviously how the problems are, are pretty serious and pretty significant. And then this, that policy just made things worse. It wasn't like that was the only reason that reality exists, but it just made it worse instead of making it better, right? Yes. And then, but you, you stepped up and when you came out and, and you, you know, I mentioned in your bio and you started this, uh, a group called involuntary veterans. And yes. so I think that's kind of where I want us to hear what your goals are with that, what you've done with that and the connections you're making with that, because the thing is you're trying to right the wrongs um, in whatever way you can with this organization. So, so tell us a little bit about that, Brianna. Yeah. So I, interestingly enough, I named it involuntary veterans, the reason I did that is because, well, as a veteran, right, I didn't actually have the choice in becoming one. What if I wanted to continue? You know, it, it wasn't an option. Uh, so I, I call us involuntary veterans because that choice was kind of, it was out of the picture. And the goal of it is it's a support group. It's very much focused on the social aspect because there's a lot of law and, and um, class actions actually that I, I wanna encourage us with at the end, hopefully, to talk about some of the good things happening. Um, there's a lot of that side, but we don't see um, the union of, of the veterans that have gone through this. I think our voice is really quieted. I think we're being pushed under the rug. I think that the DOD is actually correcting its wrongs in policy, but is not actually being <laughs> like corrected publicly. Um, people don't know. Honestly, I go around and I tell people if they ask, I was in the military and then I say, yeah, I was kicked out because of the vaccine. I, I just say it. And if people are controversial about it, then they kind of step away. But um, most people are just like, wow, I, I didn't even know. So that was one of the goals in, in Voluntary Veterans is just to raise awareness to the public and to bring the heart of, hey, veterans out there who have gone through this, we want you to be reassured of your honorable service. Be reassured that you did good, that you did something courageous, and that you do deserve that honorable discharge. Um, so we, I am putting together like, um, it's just a blog of information, a community group. We can talk, we can um, discuss, we can encourage one another. And then we also, are gonna offer resources to these veterans. So people like Bob Donovan with Operation Gratitude, he knows a ton of veteran resources. And also 
how do you upgrade your discharge status? How do you go through that with a VSO or on your own? So practical things, but also just um, just trying to reassure you, make you like, okay, I did a good job. That's right. the and, and create that support network, and then and give people the uh, the information they need to kind of either change the situation around should they choose to come back in to get the right kind of discharge, and hopefully as things uh, change in the future, that that uh, wrong will be righted, and yes. that that. <laughs> That, that uh, error or whatever you want to call it will be corrected and the lessons learned not to do it again, especially to the, uh, to the people who serve and, and love their country to be able to be in the military, that, to treat them like that. I mean, to treat anybody like that is wrong, but to treat, you know, especially people who, who've made that commitment to service uh, is another level of wrong, in my opinion. Yes. So, you know, so if that if that can get corrected, and I then maybe I just uh, did a little bit of work as a line producer on a project called Follow the Science, which is a documentary series that uh, shows the other alternative points of view that exist out there on the whole COVID narrative that we were given, and it, you know interviews scientists and and doctors and other people who have a different opinion, and I know they're going to continue to do that uh, documentary series. So I will introduce you to them because I'm sure some of your story and the story about involuntary veterans might be a good piece for that story in the future as well, so that people can learn the lessons of the mistakes that were made during this period and what was done to harm good people. Yeah, no, that, that would be, that would be amazing. Um, and I just love what's happening with the awareness aspect. Just, I see in my generation, young people, I think we realized during COVID, Hey, this is my generation and my children's that are going to be affected by this. Why are we living like this? This is not okay. And I see a lot of young people stepping up and getting passionate and getting involved. I see uh, mothers. A lot of moms are stepping up right now. They're, they're starting organizations. They're pulling their kids out of school and homeschooling them. They're fighting against bills that are literally going to take away their children. So I'm proud of people because I think COVID woke people up. Uh, and I'm proud of also like the senators that have helped, like Senator Ted Cruz with the Americans Act. He's right. trying to um, get all of the veterans who've been discharged for this to get an upgraded discharge to honorable. Uh, he's trying to get us some compensation. There's class actions right now. Dale Sauron, he's an attorney. He just filed one in February, and he's trying to get compensation and reinstatement and honorable discharges. Um, there's just a ton of good people. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy with the new National Defense Authorization Act. He also was implemental in actually making the mandate stop. Otherwise, it would have still been going. So there's a oh. lot of good, a lot of good that I see from this. Well, Brianna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your powerful story. And thank you for, um, you know, letting people know what happened, that the wrongs that happened and that what people need to do to stand up and, and fight for what's right. So uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and being part of this. And so thank you so much. Um, you have a great day. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And everybody who's watched the show, you can check out Involuntary Veterans on Facebook and uh, Instagram. And if you know any veterans or military people who've experienced anything similar to this, please connect them to that organization. And once again, uh, thank you, uh, Brianna, for being strong and, and doing what you've done. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.